Sydney Environment Institute, in partnership with Sydney Ideas, presents The Plastic Plague, Global Governance and the Plastosphere, with speaker Peter Stute and respondents Ruth Barkhan and Fiona Allen. All right. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. Uh, before we begin the proceedings, as usual, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we speak, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation that's upon their ancestral lands at the University of Sydney, uh, is built. And we at the Sydney Environment Institute uh, always talk about the importance uh, of this place because of the long-lasting uh, relationship between human and non-human on this land, the amount of knowledge there is uh, about adapting to environmental change and how important it is to continue to respect and engage that knowledge. Uh, my name is David Schlossberg. I am a professor of environmental politics and the co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute. Uh, Sydney Environment Institute works on a range of issues from climate change and adaptations to oceans, which is uh, why we're co-sponsoring this uh, event, to food systems, to uh, environmental justice, a whole range of issues, mostly focusing uh, on the environmental humanities and social sciences. So we're very happy to sponsor this evening along uh, with Sydney Ideas. I want to say thanks to, well, I would say thanks to Meredith Hall, but she's gone now from Sydney Ideas, but we always thank Meredith, um, to my staff at the Sydney Environment Institute, including Irene, who's uh, running the show here tonight, and uh, particular thanks to Tony Capon, who is uh, here, um, who helped uh, to set the, um, the evening up. So um, for folks who don't know Tony, Tony is our uh, new, the University of Sydney's uh, new professor of planetary health, uh, the only professor of planetary health uh, on the planet, uh, which is nice for us, uh, and we look forward to working with Tony uh, in the coming years. So I'm just here to introduce folks and let you know how the night's going to run. So we're going to have uh, a talk um, from Peter Stute, uh, and then we'll have two of our locals, both coincidentally, I think it is coincidentally, from uh, Gender and Cultural Studies uh, to respond, uh, Associate Professor Ruth Barkhan and Dr. Fiona Allen. Uh, and then we'll have some time for audience Q&A. So I'll just introduce folks now, and I'll run the Q&A at the end, um, but then I'm off stage. So first, I'll introduce the respondents. So Associate Professor Ruth Barkhan works in gender and cultural studies. Her past research and multiple books explore the body in contemporary culture, uh, with particular interest in nudity and uh, complementary and alternative medicine. She's also one of our best teachers, has won numerous teaching awards, both at the faculty level and university level. Um, and her current research uh, focuses on sustainability in everyday life, and we've got some overlapping interests there. She's been examining the resurgence of chicken keeping in the suburbs of Sydney. Uh, Dr. Fiona Allen is an ARC Future Fellow and a senior lecturer also in Gender and Cultural Studies. She's the author of Home Economics, Speculating on Everyday Life, which is forthcoming and Renovation Nation. Her research focuses on broad, the broad area of cities, open space, uh, urban cultures, social studies of finance, cultural and political theory, and environmental humanities. Uh, and we're happy to have both of them with us this evening. And our featured speaker this evening is Professor Peter Stute, who is director, at least for now, of uh, the Loyola Sustainability Research Center, and he's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Concordia University in Montreal. Peter's main areas of expertise include international relations uh, and law, global environmental politics, and human rights. Uh, this month, he'll sit as provost visiting scholar at the University of Tasmania. In 2012, he was a Fulbright research chair in the, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. Happy to be out of there about now, I think. In 2013, he was an Erasmus scholar at the International Institute for Social Studies in The Hague. Before that, he was a Leverhulme Scholar in Climate Justice at the University of Reading, UK, which has a really phenomenal uh, climate justice program at the moment. Dr. Stutz currently working with UNEP on the GEO6, as well as the design and construction of two uh, MOOCs, one on ecosystems, the other on wastewater and nutrient runoff management. He's a senior research fellow with Earth Systems Governance Project of Future Earth. We actually had just a, a number of people from the Earth Systems Governance Project here for a workshop a couple of weeks ago, a member of the Canadian Association of the Club of Rome, expert member uh, of the Commission on Education and Communication of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Recent publications include Global Ecopolitics. Um, his bio also says he's working on a new edited collection on uh, Canadian-U.S. Uh, environmental relations. I could expect there to be lots of changes in that 
uh, as well in the coming years. So um, we have to rewrite the whole thing. I, I'm sure. <laughs> um, tonight's talk is on the plastic plague. Did that change? No, reducing the plastic heritage of humankind. So please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Peter Stewart. So thank you very much. Um, I begin by saying that I am a bit, a little bit under the weather, travel here, etc. And jet lag, of course, is uh, an ongoing thing. And my son is here. You'll hear him coughing a bit. So I don't know if I'd sit quite so close to him, but uh, I'm, I'm relatively safe back here, perhaps. Um, so yeah, the the topic of the the plastic plague. Um, we were speaking earlier about how this has really exploded as an issue. Um, I started looking into this four or five years ago, and earnestly perhaps around three, and I've noticed a tremendous increase in the amount of public attention that's been paid to it, thankfully, because it really is one of the most severe challenges, I think, that humankind faces today. And that's still, in some circles, not uh, public knowledge, unfortunately, and it should be, and it hopefully will be um, very soon. So you've probably all seen this sort of image, right, of a seabird, which is basically um, starved to death because its digestive tract has been filled with uh, plastic of various sorts. And I can show you many others I won't um, of other uh, mammals and species that have been affected this way. Um, this was from actually from a series which was taken, a series of photos which were taken around um, various uh, islands uh, a few years ago. And the estimates are that uh, something like 90% of seabirds <coughs> around the world actually ingest plastic at some point in their lives. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and many of them are dying as a result. So that's the shocker photo that I start this lecture with typically. Um, and you can imagine what kind of a death that is, right? For a, um, so the problem, we've got up to 80% of marine debris. Uh, we think is plastic. This is probably a low estimate. There are other forms of marine debris. We should be clear about that. So it's not all about plastic, but plastic is by far the biggest problem we face. Something like 260 million tons of plastic enters the oceans every year. Um, roughly 10% of the uh, plastic which is produced, that has increased to around 300 million tons now, according to some estimates, uh, if we're sticking with the 10% level. Um, and we've all seen plastic garbage patches, perhaps, and I'll, I'll get into that a bit later. But it's really the plastic that you see floating in the ocean or in lakes or what have you is just literally the tip of the plastic iceberg, um, to mix metaphors. Um, the real problem are the non-recoverables, what we call. And this is the smaller pieces of plastic which actually exist in the ocean, um, in, the, in the lower levels, uh, in the benthic zones, and also in the sediment of the oceans and in rivers. Um, this is where we're seeing our biggest problem. Um, microplastic, plastic does not biodegrade. Right? So plastic photodegrades. The sun can break it down into smaller and smaller pieces, but there's a limit to how small it will break down. Um, it can go all the way to what we call nanoplastic, right? um, which is something like in some cases, the estimate I read, plastic can actually get down to a size which is something like one-tenth the width of a human hair. I'm not a good example, but <laughs> those of you with hair, touch your hair, okay. And imagine one-tenth of that. That's how small plastic can get. And one of the big problems we're finding here and, and ongoing research is investigating this is that, in fact, that's small enough to permeate um, the membranes right, of actual species. Um, such as plankton, right, at the bottom of the marine food chain. It's a very serious issue in that sense. Um, and I'll expand a bit more on that, but my main interest in this, of course, is as a um, political scientist looking at international relations, uh, as a governance issue, right? So it's a governance puzzle which seems endlessly complex. Um, and importantly, I think, especially to the, uh, the work that's being done, that's fine. Sit in my chair, please. Oh, she's looking for a phone. She left her phone. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Happens all the time. Um, is is the, uh, the fact that it's, it's, plastic is not often associated with justice as an issue. So my main argument that I make is that it is, in fact, a social justice issue. It's not just about chemicals. 
It's not just about chemistry. Um, it's not just about industrial production. It is, in fact, a justice issue of the first order. And I would like to argue that climate justice is, is of course, in, integrally linked right, to pollution. Right? Plastic justice is something we have to start thinking about seriously if we're going to deal with this issue as the SDGs actually demand that we do. Sustainable development goals demand that we do. Right, so, you might not have heard that phrase before, plastic justice. Sounds good, right? Okay, there we go. Um, everyone will be tweeting it by the end of the night, I'm sure. <laughs> plastic justice for all, okay. So, microplastic um, comes from various sources. <clears throat> of course, anything that's made out of plastic basically uh, is derived from pre-production microplastic resin pellets. These are very, very small, of course. Um, you can see them here in terms of uh, what they look like compared to the human hand. And this is poured into a form. Heat is applied and various types of chemicals are applied. And this is how you get plastic bottles. This is how you get plastic on machines like this, um, computer frames and what have you. And so plastic nurdles basically are at the heart of most plastic production. And we always, uh, although millions of tons of plastic nurdles are used every year, there's a certain percentage of them which get lost, right, which get into the environment and get into water supplies ultimately. Everything, if you ever want to wor worry about the centrality of the oceans to life on Earth, you can look at it through this prism, I think, you know, of how whatever form of pollution, sooner or later it ends up there in the oceans. Plastic is the poster case for this. So plastic, which, plastic bags, which um, you, know, you see floating around desert spaces and so on, eventually work their way into waterways and into oceans even. Um, so, yeah, these small particles, as I mentioned here, can choke plankton, um, creel, other food sources, and something like 3,500 to 100,000 pellets per square kilometer have been found, and studies have found up to 100,000 particles per square meter in some areas. Right? So 100,000 plastic particles within a square meter of water. Um, there are estimates that have been highly... Um, publicized as well that, to put this in perspective, and this is something Prince Charles was fond of repeating, but by the year 2050, the estimate is that in terms of pure volume, in terms of mass, there will be more plastic in the oceans than fish. Right? If we continue along our current path. Right? So by 2050, we're looking at a monumental change in the ecosystems that basically um, permit human life. Right. And this is something that we have to take very seriously, of course. Um, a lot is being done, and I'll come back to that, but not enough. So you've heard of the North Pacific Garbage Patch, or you probably have. You don't live too far from it. Um, these are convergence zones where plastic, which is accumulated um, largely from uh, coastal areas uh, because of ocean currents, right, end up in these very large patches, as we call them. Uh, so these are quite famous, infamous, I should say. Um, the, the plastic island, the Pacific one in particular, uh, roughly 700,000 to 15 million square kilometers. Um, mostly, it's not, people talk about you can see this from space or you can walk on it. And that's all nonsense. But, but you can, in fact, um, physically sense the plastic. Um, and many um, ships have done this in research uh, capacity. And most of the plastic is below the surface. So it's like this soup sort of that exists, right? Um, and some of the plastic is large, some of it's small, some of it's caught up. Uh, it's actually, we talk about the plastosphere. Uh, this is a phrase that biologists have used, suggesting that these plastic-prone areas have become ecosystems in and of themselves. That, in fact, um, there's a... Uh, it's an ecosystem that favors certain species over others. So certain pathogens, global health, planetary health, uh, yeah, um, are being transported by um, plastic, basically, um, patches. Um, massive international cleanup effort is needed, obviously. There's also patches in the Western Pacific, the Atlantic, and the Indian Ocean. But convergence zones, again, I want to stress this. You know, this is just part of the problem. It's just a high-profile part of the problem. Right? The real danger we're finding now is that we're finding uh, microplastics in freshwater in sediment, in beaches. Um, and I would argue that, and I won't have time to get into this in any depth, 
But I think one of the things that we struggled with here is that for the most part the plastic issue has been about the oceans and about uh, sort of the tragedy of the commons, about areas beyond national jurisdiction to adopt the Convention on Biological Diversities um, phraseology. Um, now what we're finding with continued scientific research is that fresh waters are in fact as contaminated as oceans. And I think this is going to be a wake-up call, if you wish, that's needed. And I'll give a couple of examples later to prompt national legislative efforts that are really needed. Um, it's hard to get people to care enough, perhaps, about the oceans, as, as ridiculous as that might sound to us, those of us that are concerned about ocean health. Um, but national fresh water is another issue um, that will really affect politicians. Um, these are the plastic bags. Uh, you know, this is the most obvious case, right? And I'm, I'm glad that there are a lot of cities and towns that are banning plastic bag use or single plastic bag use. Um, 30 billion lost per year, thousands of years of photo degradation, right? Um, so you use the plastic bag for five minutes, it takes, it can take two, three thousand years before that's degraded. And it, when it doesn't actually um, degrade into nothing, right? It's still in the ocean, it's still in the atmosphere. Um, and of course they look like jellyfish, so turtles eat them and choke to death and so forth. Uh, and it's ubiquitous. You, know, um, you can travel around the world and see the plastic bag plague <laughs> everywhere you go. You know, I've been in the Namibian desert and I've seen plastic bags just littering um, termite uh, mountains, for example, or termite hills. Um, there are many other sources, of course, and this is one of the problems. Um, fishing gear, oops, um, cosmetics, especially the scrubbing exfoliants, which are often used. They're being banned in many places, by the way. Um, toothpaste, your toothpaste used to contain a lot of plastic. Automobile and bicycle tires, synthetic closing fibers, the list goes on. Um, I mentioned seabirds that eat a lot of plastics. They also disperse it to their feces, so that's a problem as well. 80%, however, we should stress this important point, originates from land-based sources. So, although some plastic pollution does come from ships and ship the shipping industry, most of it is coming from uh, the land itself. It's imperiling uh, marine life, entanglement, starvation, ingestion, smothering of the seabed, bioaccumulation, right, because each plastic contains different types of toxic material and that bioaccumulates through the food chain. Um, but one of the questions that I think is really important now that scientists are looking at is this harm to plankton and zooplankton, um, through main, mainly through membrane um, permeability. Um, this can disrupt the algal feeding cycle and carbon cycle itself. Create, this can help, in other words, exacerbate. We've already got problems with dead zones, as you might know, um, because of eutrophication in oceans and nutrient runoff. This is going to make the problem much worse, according to some estimates. The carbon cycle itself is dependent on the production, the food production system of the ocean. And if that's being compromised at its very base, then the question that ultimately arises is whether or not plastic production is going to compromise the ability of the oceans to be our main carbon sinks. <coughs> so I let that sit in a bit because a lot of people Right? It, there's that there could be in the long term a link between plastic pollution and the ability of oceans to absorb carbon. Oceans now absorb, there's different estimates, right? It's anywhere from, you know, you hear a third to a half of the carbon that we admit, omit. If they don't do that anymore, then we are in serious trouble with regard to, to um, global warming. Of course, this is the more common image. which is that sea mammals um, get stuck in plastic debris or fishing debris and so on. And I'm not downplaying that. That's very significant. It's important to get people's attention that way. But I think what's emerging is, and there's not a consensus on this, but what's emerging is a very real concern that the problem is much, much more important. Right? Um, so I looked at the uh, Australian study by Cicero, right, which, which was lauded as a very good one, actually, they received an award for this. Um, and these are some of the conclusions that they reached just in terms of 
the ubiquity again of plastic in uh, Australian shorelines and Australian waters. Right? So, and I'm off to Tasmania next month, as was mentioned. Um, the Tasman Sea is a uh, global hotspot for seabird impacts, apparently. Um, so we'll have to talk to people there and see that in person. But as, as I mentioned here, uh, seabirds, turtles, whales, dolphins, dugongs, um, which one of which we saw in, in the aquarium downtown yesterday, uh, fish and crabs, crocodiles, and so forth. Right? So they're all affected by this. It's a wildlife disaster. I think that's quite clear. Um, and it's not just a wildlife disaster. Right? It's a human disaster. It's a human health issue of the first um, order. And so you can imagine living life like this, as many people do. Um, we, all, we know all about the garbage mountains in Manila and elsewhere, where families actually live nearby, near, near Rio de Janeiro and other places, and collect garbage all day. But many of these are actually aqua, you might call them garbage dumps, uh, where children, in many cases, sit on boats all day and shift out um, the, the, the plastic floating for anything valuable that they can bring back home. Uh, this is, this is a, a tragic set of circumstances, and it's the result of a confluence of things, of course. You know, the big ubiquity of plastic production in our societies today and consumption, right, combined with persistent structural poverty that puts people in situations like this where um, they're reliant on this sort of activity for economic survival. Uh, it does affect human diet and health. It affects yours. Um, there was a good study in Marine Pollution Bulletin that looked at bluefin, albacore, and swordfish. 18% um, carried moderate to high levels of plastic pollution in their bodies. Um, and, and I mentioned here some of the various uh, chemicals which were found in those fish, right, including flame retardants and other chemicals that have been linked to endocrine uh, disruption, Wool reproductive rates and other health risks. Microplastics have been found in sea salt. A lot of people think it's healthier to buy sea salt, um, but they have in fact found some of the sea salt coming from Asia now contains plastic in it, so be careful if you're cooking with that. Ground almonds, oatmeal, um, and air pollution as well. Uh, I threw this in for Tony because I know he's concerned about air pollution, but um, nanoparticle dispersion, uh, burning of plastic waste is obvious, right, as, as, a, as a, a, f a source of air pollution as well. But it's not just that. When plastic degrades, a lot of it gets, does get picked up by wind. And a lot of these nanoparticles um, that are sitting on beaches, for example, get blown and end up uh, in people's lungs. Right? Going to the beach might not be that healthy if you're breathing in uh, plastic. Right? Um, I mentioned freshwater. So I'm from Canada. Right? People think of Canada as relatively, well, I don't think anyone does that anymore. I was going to say pristine and pollution-free, right? No one's that naive, right? Um, that's just on our uh, postage stamps, maybe. But, but um, you don't think of the, the Great Lakes, I, th I think, anymore as great sources of pollution after we did some significant cleanups in the late 60s and 70s, getting rid of phosphates and so on. Um, but, however, we have recently discovered very high densities of plastic pollution in the Great Lakes, uh, in particular in Lake Erie, which shouldn't surprise us. That's typically the one that's the most polluted. But perhaps surprisingly even in the St. Lawrence River. Uh, we actually live very close to the St. Lawrence River near Montreal at, at this time. And a colleague of mine at McGill University did one of the first studies where they actually went and dug up Sediments, and this is one of the fastest moving rivers in the world. Uh, something like seven million liters of water passes through that river per second, right? and you just don't think of it as collecting anything, let alone plastics. Right? But they went and looked at the, um, the sediments in particular, and, and were quite surprised by the levels of plastic they found there. And it's not from Montreal; it's plastic that's coming down um, from the Great Lakes themselves. So from cities like Detroit and Windsor, uh, Toronto, uh, and others. Um, so sanitation systems are just unable to filter right, this sort of thing. We can talk about it getting better filter, filtration systems in our waterworks. In some places in the world, that's an impossible dream. We all know that right now. Right? But in some areas, 
maybe there's some hope. But some of the smaller um, microbeads, you know, that's probably not going to happen. One of the greatest sources of plastic pollution right now is, in fact, clothing. So anything, any sort of synthetic material, every time you wash it, particles are escaping into the water system. And the sewage system just can't pick up that sort of micro density. Right? So it's there. It's something we have to deal with. It's something that often is not even uh, detectable by the human eye. Right? So that's one of the issues that we're, we're facing. I also presented a presentation for, uh, in Texas because you think Texas, you know, well, they don't care about the environment, do they? They just want oil, right, and drill oil and so on. Um, so what about plastics there, of all places? Um, but again, very high levels have been found, 10% of marine fishes in coastal areas. Very sensitive shrimp industry there, of course, which was really harmed by the, um, the oil explosion, the Deepwater Horizon uh, oil explosion, which took place a few years ago. Well, that just added to the problems. The real problem they're facing, many people are suggesting now, is in fact plastic pollution. And one of the reasons for this is, again, don't forget oceans, rivers, lakes do not stand still. Right? So all the pollution that's coming out of South America, or sorry, Central America in this case, um, is actually swirling up into the Gulf of Mexico. So it's become what's known as a litter hotspot. And then you have storm surges like Hurricane Katrina, which you all recall, uh, which sweep out enormous quantities of plastic waste. Um, it, the water comes in, it picks up the plastic that's sitting around the cities, cities like Sydney as well, when you have big storms here, all that ends up back in the ocean. Uh, the Rio Grande, uh, which is, of course, the river that separates the U.S. and Mexico um, at this point, right? They, they haven't built the wall right through it yet, right? That's, that's, they're working on that. Um, but they could maybe make the wall out of plastic, at least. They could put the plastic to some good use. I'll suggest that to Donald. Um, but, again, similar percentage of freshwater fish affected, uh, as in marine ecosystems, right? I mean, there are some differences in terms of the range, but um, the Rio Grande has had so much stress in recent years. It's amazing that river survives at all. There are places where it looks almost like a trickle today. Um, five million gallons of raw sewage per day, right? unfiltered, untreated, going into this river. So it's, it's very important to remember, again, microplastics can carry high densities of pathogens. So we are, and this is not my area by, by any means, so I defer to people with that sort of background that know more about that. But my understanding anyways is that they're, we're looking at uh, microplastics as conveyor belts right, for new pathogens. There are cases also where plastics are being frozen into um, when ice formation takes place in Antarctica and in the Arctic every year, right? And that's being frozen into the ice and then released again so you get this double whammy effect where you've got new pollution coming in and old pollution um, coming out as well. Um, now, this all sounds pretty depressing. I realize that, right? I haven't given you a lot of reason to smile, right? except for a rather uh, easy and cheap Trump joke, right? So, okay. Um, but, but there is uh, an awful lot going on, and I want to stress that too. Right? So in Texas, again, Texas, right? Um, drill, baby, drill. Yeah, okay, so... They are very concerned about this, right? and many people are surprised to learn this. But so we, we have now a, a coastal cleanup program that around the globe takes place every year, twice, two, th two or three times a year. The Ocean Conservancy is one of the main uh, organizations that puts this on. But it really got started back in 1986 by volunteers in Texas, which is now over 180 co 108 countries participate. Um, the UN has regional seas programs. I'll come back to that. And the NOAA has a, mar a marine debris prevention program now, which is actually quite strong. And here I will not joke about Trump. Um, please, right? Don't touch that, please. Right? Um, no doubt they'll mangle it somehow. But I'm, I'm really hoping that the EPA survives the next four years. But it's really important also that the NOAA, and this program in particular, does. Um, so there are different initiatives aimed at university students and the general public. In the city of Austin, those of you that know Texas might know, there's only one progressive city in Texas, and that's called Austin. Um, 
and you can even go there and, and watch, uh, you know, um, bands like Fish Play and so forth, and Radiohead plays there. Okay, so you know they've got their own thing going. They're a very unique aspect of Texas culture, um, but they put a single-use plastic bag in quite some time ago, um, and probably leading the way. Um, and I know that Houston, Dallas, even you know they are talking about that. I'm not to date on this whether they they had some serious flooding there a couple years ago, and. Uh, one of the results of that was the increased um, awareness, I think, of, of pollution as well in the streets. Technical solutions are limited. Um, I know there's some geo, geo, there's always some geoengineer in the crowd, right? And you know, well, we can fix this problem with technology. Uh, you know, there's no doubt we need technology. Technology is going to help. So we have cleanup programs. We have special boats that have been developed, especially by I've got some Dutch heritage, so I'm always proud to brag about this. Um, there's been some excellent programs developed by the Dutch in particular. Um, and some of that will be successful, I think, and have an impact. Um, you can clean up consigned areas if the plastic's floating on the surface. But again, what I'm talking about is plastic particles that are so small that even if you dredged the area, you know, the, the only way to do that essentially would be to kill everything in the area, right? It's extremely difficult to do it. They're still working on the technology. They're making some progress. Um, biodegradable plastic, you've all heard of this. It's really a misnomer in a sense. Yes, you can have biodegradable plastic, but it only biodegrades at degrees of 50 plus, just 50 degrees Celsius and over. So it's basically using industrial processes where you can put it in a furnace and it'll biodegrade. Um, if you're in a situation where plastic left on the street is biodegrading, that means probably you've got a bigger problem than plastic pollution because you're looking at 50 degree plus temperatures. Right? Now I realize here in Australia, <laughs> that might not shock you so much. When I say that in Canada, people always, well, well, that's, that could never happen, but I know here, you know, you've gotten close in some cases. But nonetheless, biodegradable plastic, the UN came out with a big report if you're interested. By the way, anything I say here, if you like sources, whatever, please let me know. I'm um, pleased to supply them. Um, that just is not a viable um, solution in the long run. So retrieval, extraction, promising in some areas, but not feasible in many others. Um, Geobioengineering designs, and people are working on this, so we can make microbes that actually eat and ingest plastic. Um, again, the, the overall consensus there is that it's quite mixed in terms of whether or not we want to go that route. Um, amongst other things, if they can eat and ingest plastic, um, what else? <laughs> right? What else might they destroy? Um, however, there is some interesting work being done in synthetic biology, as you might know, with CRISPR technology and other forms um, that might be able to target certain DNA, which would make organisms capable of digesting plastic, but it's a highly, uh, in my view, it's a bit of science fiction at this stage. Um, and future threats often are ignored. So aquaculture is huge now, right? The world, we've, we've destroyed the world's fisheries. We have to face that fact. And we are moving towards aquaculture on a global scale. So we're over 50% of global f uh, fish production through aquaculture. And that will keep increasing. Well, it turns out that aquaculture is a major source of plastic pollution. And because of all the styrofoam that's used and all the plastic bags that are used and all the dispensing material that's used and so forth. Uh, leaving aside the other issues right, about um, microbial resistance that we're we're, or, or antibiotics that are being used and so forth. Um, Crossbreeding, etc. Uh, 3D printing. 3D printing is the future, right? Everyone's very happy about this uh, in industry, anyways. They won't need to hire workers to make anything. Uh, and 3D printing is big, you know. But there, I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but there could be a day, not too long from now, when most universities, at least, you know, have classes in 3D printing where you sit there, you make your design, and then you go out and you, you make your own house. Right. The other day, they 3D printed a house. It was on the, I forget which company did it, but um, <clears throat> I've got a student in Geneva right now who's, who's you know, developed his own 3D printer. Fantastic. The problem is that the vast majority of 3D printing is going to be done through plastics. It's going to be done through those nurdles that I introduced to you sooner, right, or earlier, pardon me, and, and they'll be used in the production of these materials. So they talk about 3D printing. You can design and make your own Everything from, you know, uh, uh, a keyboard to a gun to what, what have you. It's all going to be plastic that gets used, that gets spilled in usage, gets spilt in um, transportation and so forth. 
So these are all concerns. When I mentioned technology, uh, there are some technological solutions, but there are also some serious technological challenges we have to deal with. And there's also a shift that's taking place right now. Um, and please let me know about time if I'm... Um, in, in terms of the geographic or geopolitical focus of the problem. Okay. So typically, plastics were an American slash European invention. Right? And that's where most of the pollution came from. There's been a sea change, pardon the pun, in recent years. So that now, recent studies indicate the vast majority of plastic pollution that's entering the oceans is coming from Asia. Right, in particular from China and from production processes there. This, has been, this shift is taking place over the last three decades or so. Right? Um, that does change things a bit because uh, while the Chinese, of course, have been very... Um, uh, I, I, I don't want to use the word progressive, but at least they've been, been very forthright about their need to deal something, to do something about climate change. Right? So, and they're still producing energy with coal, but they're also trying at least to... Um, work their way around that. Um, th there hasn't been that much coming out of China on the plastics issue, and we really need that to happen. Right? So already I'm starting to tell you stories which sound a bit like the climate change story 10 years ago, right, or 15 years ago, um, where you have the same, same situation where this sort of free rider issue comes up. And northern states can say, well, we shouldn't have to do anything about this until China does. Okay. So we're in that situation. European advances, industrial participation have been great. Um, a lot of uh, companies have been actually very good about this. I mentioned the, the, the facial um, defoliants before, right? The, um, the fact is that if the companies like Oriel and others that produce um, uh, beauty products, in many cases have voluntarily cut back on microbeads. Colgate said, okay, we're not going to put it in uh, toothpaste anymore, thankfully. Um, so industry has not been completely ignorant of the problems they're causing here. And there's a big debate and big discussion, of course, about the proper role of the um, private sector in all of this. We can come back to that. South American aquaculture, now a serious contributor. And so South, Af South America didn't used to be a problem in terms of plastics are not so, such a big problem. But now, because aquaculture is becoming increasingly popular there, it is. So there are these changes in, in, in regulatory policies in the U.S. that I already mentioned, a major concern. Here's another shadowing of the climate change problem. Right? So an estimate, one study estimated um, 20 countries out of a total of 192 coastlines that they looked at. Right? That th doesn't mean 192 countries. I realize not every country has a coastline. Right? But most countries have more than one coastline. Okay, so... Um, 20 countries are responsible for 83% of the global plastic debris. So it sounds a lot like global warming, doesn't it, right? Where, you know, that kind of, that you could flip that number and talk about carbon emissions as well. So all these things, however, challenges, do not overshadow the fact that this is what we do refer to um, as a universal obligation, I think, that every country has to participate in and contribute to the solution. Um, plastic debris threatens the survival of future generations, and it includes, this includes food security and climate resilience, as I've tried to demonstrate. There are all sorts of links with climate change that I really want to focus on. Uh, first of all, about 8% of fossil fuels go towards plastic production. So roughly 8% of all the oil that gets drilled in this world is used to make plastic. Right? So there's a contribution right there. Um, and this contributes further to ocean acidification and so forth. Right? It threatens carbon cycling. It increases sea levels because there's more content in the oceans, right? just by definition, displacement alone. Um, invasive species and dead zones, I've mentioned all these things already. And there are many political similarities. I think the most striking one might be with the climate issue, you know, the small island states, right? which have typically, even collectively, contributed a minuscule amount to the global climate issue. And so speaking of climate justice, you know, we often refer to small island states um, as the most glaring, perhaps, example of injustice taking place. Um, well, it's the very same with plastic, with the plastic justice issue, um, that these small island states end up with a lot of the stuff on their shores 
they end up, of course, that it harms their local fisheries. Right? And, in fact, they've contributed very little um, to the problem. Right? And when storm surges take place, um, they find the next day there's this just plastic litter all over the place that hasn't come from their own doing. Right? So precautionary principle, I think we all know what that is. Um, we don't know in the long run what these microplastics are going to do. We don't know what it's going to do to the global carbon cycle, let alone the food cycle. Um, common but differentiated responsibilities. Everyone has an obligation to do something about this, but it's clear that some countries have created and are creating more of a problem than others, and some industries have created more of a problem than others. Intergenerational equity, I think this is the most self-evident one. Right? Um, this is the Anthropocene. Let's live with that. But what kind of Anthropocene do you want to leave future generations? Right? Is it one in which plastic is ubiquitous and in fact becomes even part of the, um, uh, the ecosystems on which we're dependent. And common heritage of mankind. Again, this principle, I think, applies also because this is, again, what the legacy that we're leaving. Uh, there's been a lot of responses, so I, I encourage anyone to check these out if they're interested. The UN has a global partnership on waste management and as, as a now a global partnership on marine litter. Um, they put together a very nice MOOC, by the way, if you're interested in taking a course on this. A university in the Netherlands put this together. Almost as nice as the MOOCs my university puts together in uh, Canada for, for the UN. Um, 2011, the Honolulu Commitment and Strategy took place. This was a meeting that took place in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, they've been really hard hit by this problem. Uh, it's hurting the tourist industry and so on. Invasive species are an issue there. Um, so they have a, they conducted a meeting largely led by the U.S. Uh, in which they put together a commitment of um, you know, different strategies that they could use. But it's all very voluntary, right? It's not a convention in any sort of harsh way of using that term. Um, it's a voluntary effort that states have agreed to try and follow. Um, you've heard of the law of the sea, no doubt. It's limited basically to marine-based dumping. What we really need is our land-based regulations. Many, many NGOs are involved in this. And I threw that one on there today, Boomerang, because I, I, I looked it up as the Australian NGOs involved in this. And the, I don't know if any of you are members of Boomerang. No? Okay. Well, according to their website, you all are. But anyway. Right. Um, but what a great name for an Australian. Come on, you know. Um, you throw the plastic out, right? It's coming back. Okay. It's wonderful. Um, the oil and chemis chemical industry, again, do engage <coughs> in, in quite a bit of voluntary action. Um, I don't want to paint this as a Manichian sort of goodbye, bad person sort of thing. It's not, it's not like that. Uh, the industry actually has been involved. Um, a little too, uh, a little, too, little too slow, perhaps. But. Then you've got UN, UNEP regional sea programs and so forth, which have helped. And now you've got the SDGs. So, this is, so the Sustainable Development Goals are out. Number six and number 14... Um, actually mentioned plastics. That was a very important bit of a struggle to get that to happen, but it did. I won't spend too much time on this. I realize I'm running late. Um, am I running late? Or I'm five minutes? Okay. Uh, but I will very quickly go over some policy recommendations. Again, a lot of this emerged from a paper that I wrote for the, the Hague um, Institute for Global Justice located in the Netherlands, and we had a conference on um, oceans governance. So I came up with this paper as, uh, to respond to their request. But it's also being used in another context, too, which is related to the um, Future Earth Consortium of Researchers um, that I, I'll talk a bit about slightly later. Um, so we need to strengthen transnational networks working on this issue. Right? Uh, there was a resolution at the United Nations Environmental Assembly in Nairobi in June or late May, uh, my wife and I were there, um, and, and they, the, a resolution came forth on this issue. So that's fantastic. The issue's out there. The UN's aware of it. The Honolulu strategy, which is pretty weak right now, loose set of recommendations, could be strengthened. It could even become more of a global convention. Um, many of us are arguing for a global convention, despite the fact that we're fully aware that governments and people suffer from what we call convention fatigue. Um, but this might be one area where we should make an exception. And the, and the convention should probably be modeled loosely on the Paris Climate Agreement model, you know, where states commit to making changes, and there is some sort of mechanism for redistribution of wealth um, in order to deal with the problem. 
right? They could be market-based solutions, but I think those have limitations. Um, but we need a technology fund and so forth. I'll come back to that. Uh, UN regional seas programs, very important. So the longer term, maybe we do need that um, treaty that again reflects that, <clears throat> those common but differentiated responsibilities. Plastic pollution limitation, I think is, this is really important. It should be um, integrated with climate change prevention, mitigation, and adaptation. And typically it's not. Um, I think it has to be. And I think we have to begin a serious plastic justice movement. You know, we have to look at it in terms of a social justice issue that where some people are suffering disproportionately for a problem that they did not create. Right? And this is happening around the globe. Um, so this happens at the civil society level, but also at the international legal level. I've already expanded on that. Research. Um, we've got fantastic science on this now. <coughs> we really do. One of the most impressive things looking at this is the, the trajectory of scientific knowledge that's occurred over the last 30 years about the extent of the problem, the causes of the problem, and so on. Um, one thing we're a little short on, though, and this is my arguably, and I wouldn't be surprised if my colleagues mentioned this, but this, this might be the most important aspect of this, is the behavioral aspect of it all, right? This is human behavior. Um, sometimes you lose plastic, you go on a boat, you don't close your purse tightly enough and a piece of plastic falls out of it in the wind, right? That can happen, right? So, um, but for the most part, we're talking about human behaviors that could be avoided uh, if you simply had a different mindset. And universities are great for this, of course. And, but we need more behavioral economics of marine litter, put it that way. Um, and a, gr a global marine responsibility fund, this is been called for, again, by the Global Oceans Commission. Right? Uh, and it could be supported by the Global Environment Fund or the GEF. Uh, there are other ways we can try to get some money for this. I was speaking to some GEF people in Nairobi recently about this. and this, They already contribute, by the way, in some forms to this. But th we need a fund that is actually dedicated to this, uh, I think, so that states that are having problems with the technology and so on can at least get some assistance. Um, local action, however, is always going to be the most important thing. Right? So you need improved waste management and water treatment. You need expanded recycling programs, consumption habits, and so forth. At the national level, polluter pays an extended producer responsibility. You're probably familiar with those terms. If you're not, I can expand on them, or you can, they're not hard to look up. Um, these are really important, I think, um, ethics, if you wish, of conducting business today. And there's a, there's a, I don't have time, I was going to click on this, but I won't bother. Um, but there's a really helpful publication. For those of you that are concerned about actually getting something done, right, please go to this website, email me, I'll send it to you. Um, it's basically the Marine Litter Legislation Toolkit for Policymakers. And it was put up by UNEP, by United Nations Environmental Program, last year. Um, and it's excellent. It's, it's very concise. It's written specifically for policymakers, right? so it's not for policy wonks, it's for policymakers. Uh, and uh, please check it out if you can, if you're interested in doing something about this. If you're interested in starting something at a local level, just a beach cleanup that takes an hour of your time is worth it. Everything we do is absolutely worth it on this issue. That leads me to my next point. We really have to encourage citizen science, citizen engagement on this. Right? It's great to have the scientists involved that, that have the big grants that can go out in submersibles and, and conduct scientific research on, on how much pollution is out there. But we can also use citizens with apps on their phones to, to record you know, the kind of plastic that they're finding. Um, we need uh, tracking. We need clear indicators across regions to, to track progress. Uh, I mentioned OSPAR. Right, which, which is the, the European agreement, basically, Oswald Paris Commission, um, and they use these indicators to measure marine plastic. It's, it's inadequate. We have to improve on that. SDG indicators should get us there. Some plastics contain toxic compounds that just have no place whatsoever, I think, in the pantheon of chemicals that we use for production. They could be banned as soon as possible. Basel, Stockholm Convention prevent, both provide models for that. Um, and again, regional regulation of the aquaculture industry. The last thing I wanted to mention was Future Earth. Um, 
So this is a consortium of researchers around the world that have gotten together working on almost every issue you can imagine regarding sustainability challenges. Right? I'm very pleased that the headquarters of Future Earth is actually located at my present university in Montreal, Concordia University. Um, so we put together these knowledge action networks right, on various issues. So I know that Tony and, and, and my wife, Christina, they're, they're involved in the health uh, issue, right? um, or knowledge action network. Um, the Oceans Knowledge Action Network is just put together last year. We had our first meeting in Kiel, Germany, and I'm very pleased to say that uh, there's no question that plastics are going to be um, one of the main issues that we're going to look at. And we sat down and, and uh, you know, one of those 24 hours and 25 coffees sort of day, uh, put, put together a um, schematic, basically, of all the different issues um, that we have to tackle to deal with this issue. And I mentioned before the complexity of it, right? Um, so there's science and action and governance. In our view, these are the three main things that will turn this wheel, if you wish. Um, with, within the science, you can see the different things that are involved. Um, action, I really want to stress this for most of you. Um, citizen scientists, you, you can all be citizen scientists, even if you're not scientists in any formal way. NGOs, active scientists, and so forth. Industrial volunteers. Um, especially with the exfoliate issue but others. Local policymakers have to get involved. We have household issues. Um, the packaging of food is a big one, right? So there's all sorts of tra trade-offs, sorry, that are inherent in this. So food it becomes packaged, it will preserve longer, right? It, it can stay there in a stall longer before someone buys it. If you're asking people not to package their food, especially in areas where uh, it's not difficult for contamination, food contamination to take place, you're taking, a, actually, a, asking a, that's a big ask, I'll put it that way, right? It's a big ask for the person that owns that store or what have you, and, and for the customer buying that food and placing their food safety faith in it. So these are not going to be easy things to get, to get around. Um, in some cases, we won't get around them probably. Um, and in governance, we need champions. So I mentioned Norway, um, the Netherlands. I mentioned Australia, because Australia, from my understanding, has been quite good on this issue. Um, and, and Bangladesh. Bangladesh is one of the first countries to ban plastic bags. Right? People don't think of that often. Um, new convention, however, I think is ultimately necessary. Local governments and indigenous communities, right? or aborig aboriginal communities, as I think you refer to them here, um, you know, they, they really need to be involved in this sort of thing from a governance perspective because it's their land, in many cases, that's being most affected by the ubiquity of, of plastics today. And then I do mention gender and rights, but I, I won't spend time on that because I think we'll we have some uh, commentators uh, who look at that issue in much more detail. Um, other than to say that, uh, as I mentioned, I was very impressed with the, the, the UN conference I went to in Nairobi last year that we actually had special sessions just on gender and plastic and, and the implications that has um, family relations and other issues. So. But I think I'll, I'll leave it there. I, I thank you very much for your time. And really, please, this is an issue you, you can do something about personally. Um, you can go out there and suggest to your government that it has to be a champion and lead the way to a new international plastics convention. Um, I don't know about the government you have now, but, right? but in, you know, at some point in time, um, as citizens, you can engage yourself politically. But this is really an issue where something as simple as picking up that plastic bag you see on the street on the way home tonight is going to make a difference. You can ask my son here. I force him to do it all the time. So, so thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, it's really nice to actually get not just to talk about the problem but about the whole range of solutions. Here, steal my chair. That's fine. And, uh, no, no, go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, and now we've got two separate uh, commentators, uh, Associate Professor Ruth Barkhan and Dr. Fiona Allen, and we'll take 15 minutes total, so maybe try about seven minutes. And I'll, I'll give you the one-minute warning. Hi. Well, I've got um, impromptu notes uh, Thank you very much, Peter, in relation to what was a very stimulating talk and, and I also appreciate your efforts to not just leave us all feeling flattened but to you know, point to what's being done and what can be done. So 
Um, from a gender and cultural studies point of view, um, these questions where we tend obviously to have less scientific expertise but a, a kind of um, up-close understanding of how people use products and, and the complexities of consumption. So that's the kind of lens that um, I and probably no doubt Fiona will also be bringing to these questions. Um, and as I say, this is in response to Peter's talk, so it's not a uh, full prepared talk at all. And, but I, I want to start by thinking about the cultural meanings of plastic, because plastic has got this sort of double cultural life as when it first came in as signifying you know, fabulous futures, exciting, colourful, bright, vibrant modernity, but also more or less at the same time um, fakeness, superficiality, artificiality and so on. And so in a great book called American Plastics, um, a writer called, or American Plastic rather, a writer called Jeffrey Michael uh, says that the suspicion of plastic came in almost as soon as plastic itself. So in about the 1930s there were already anti-plastics campaigners but he says that at that stage they couldn't compete with the kind of mythos of plastic as this exciting uh, new um, uh, medium, I suppose, for, for living with. And what we can hear here is an attempt now to kind of rework the cultural meanings of um, plastic. And I note that in some of Peter's written work he talks about attempts to turn it into a category of hazardous waste or pollution, much as carbon There's a battle over the meaning of CO2 at the moment as well as over, uh, as part of what actually happens to it. And it's not only the meanings of plastic, but it's also the cultural values and the principles that plastic now serves and allows us to, um, I guess, bring to life. It doesn't only represent now fabulous decoration, but it also, also re re represents and enables convenience, like takeaway food, and here already the, the links to gender and to the use of time and to the saving of labour. Uh, we connect it with pleasure, the takeaway coffee that's now something that we can do. Again, connected to the reworking of busy, sped up lives. We can bring something with us. We don't have to stop. It's links to comfort, um, the outdoor clothing that keeps us much, much uh, drier and, and warmer when we walk in the rain, for example. Or changing hygiene thresholds. Uh, you know, and I... I, I I can recall as a teacher I used to bring mugs for half-time breaks when classes were long enough to have half-time and we would have them and wash them and I could see the changing hygiene thresholds over the years as some of the students would sort of edge away and go and buy their takeaway. So all of these things are deeply about cultural um, values. Um, they're also then about the social life of plastic, so the way plastic gets used and this is where all of us are imbricated whether we like it or not. It's not just about meanings and values. Plastic is, to use your term, it's ubiquitous. It's now embedded in our routines, in our habits, in our assumptions. It's now an inevitability in a certain kind of way, which renders the question of behaviour change very, very difficult because there are many things that we can't change even if we'd want to. It's invisible. It's structured into our practices, our habits and our assumptions. So while we might decide we can have a, a, an upfront and visible um, fight about changing the meaning of the cultural meaning of plastic, it's perhaps harder to change the rich textures and fabrics and, and kind of temporalities or time schemas of everyday life. All the more so as plastic is not always recognisable as plastic. I mean, who knew that there's plastic in toothpaste? Who knows that there's plastic in the liner of their tin tomatoes? Or who knows that, um, that um, plastic is not even when, you, even when it's visible? Who knew that this isn't inert? It's not, um, it is in fact plastic, it is malleable, it's uh, off-gassing um, and so on all the time. So that even the hard plastics that might look more contained and safe and doable are in fact dynamic. These are, these are the kinds of invisibilities and I found that really interesting in your paper, Peter, this, this constant backwards and forwards between what's visible and what's invisible in this picture. Um, so you were talking about iconic images, the albatross with the stomach and so on, the landfill images. These are the a visible face of plastic 
but you're also talking about different orders of visibility, macroplastics and microplastics and nanoplastics, which we can't see and in a, we also um, are less likely to know about. And you were talking about the kind of shadow places and the hidden places where, for example, a Western gaze won't necessarily know that these impacts are being felt um, asymmetrically uh, around the globe. And as you point out, with such a kind of um, fundamental injustice in the places where they play out, not being the places that are the prime cause of generating them. So this question of visibility and invisibility struck me because visibility is one of those strategies that environmental activists use all the time, rendering things visible. And we have our apps to show us where this product was made and we have, it's, a, it's a key environmental strategy to make the hidden things visible and I think that's something that you're, you've particularly shown us how we think we all know what plastic and its problems are but in fact we don't know from what you're saying, we don't know the half of it. Um, so that... that as a strategy, that seems like something we're going to have to keep on doing in, in multiple different ways. Um, one more minute then, um, because clearly we're all implicated whether we like it or not. Our health is implicated. You talked about uh, food systems, about water safety, but also those epigenetic mechanisms whereby plastics in um, extraordinarily complex and again largely invisible ways are alter altering um, uh, our hormones, the hormones of animals and so on around the world. Uh, gender I think is an interesting one. I'm going to largely bat that back to you because I've only got a minute left and to ask you, I can think for example that it's there <coughs> as a question in the fundamental <coughs> metaphors that so many cultures share for water as a feminine essence, whether or not you think that's a useful political tool or whether that just takes us down pathways that are too familiar. Clearly the question of labour, who does the work and plastic is such a convenient labour saving work so clearly gender and labour are obviously very important. Gender and food, uh, food packaging, food preservation, food hygiene still largely remains the province of women around the world so I can see it's a crucial question but I'd love to bat that back to you to ask you to say more about what, what's happening in that global level in terms of gender. I'd also love to ask you about recycling and whether you think it is. Uh, there's such a lot of critical literature about recycling, what, what you think about that. Um, and I suppose the last thing I'd want to say, which alas is a kind of challenge back from gender and cultural studies, back about the ideal of behaviour change. I a lot of work in our fields is... Um, I suppose critical of the implicit moralisation, we should all be doing more, and also critical of the um, practical uh, impact of behaviour change strategies as they've been envisaged so far because you've, you've painted such a complex portrait. But I think you've also reminded me not to let that then turn into, oh, well, there's no point in us doing anything because it's so big, but to remind us about how everyday routines and habits and cultural meanings and values are things that can be changed and that we can all have a role in, in changing them. So thank you. Yeah, I'd like to um, start by thanking Peter for a very interesting and of course very sobering um, talk this evening. And probably um, like many of you in the room, um, um, last week I watched the Four Corners documentary Oceans of Plastic after which I thought I might never eat oysters or mussels um, again. <laughs> At least with fish, you tend not to eat the stomach. With oysters and mussels, you eat the whole thing, um, including whatever macroplastic, microplastic and nanoplastic um, waste it may contain. But as Peter has outlined, I mean, that kind of difference doesn't make any sense at all now, does it? <laughs> and so the statement by one of the marine scientists in that docker has been very much on my mind. Uh, over the last couple of weeks. It's not worth throwing away plastic bags. You should just season them well and eat them directly <laughs> because they're going to end up back on your plate in one way or another. So tonight, um, Peter, uh, Peter's talk has again confirmed some of the more disturbing aspects of what is now being referred to as life in the plastosphere. Well, what does life in the plastosphere actually look like? Well, perhaps a good place to start is the fact that looking for anything in our oceans is now extremely complicated due to the density of plastic now found there. And just think about the problems that were encountered looking for the missing Air Malaysia airliner. 
masses of floating plastic garbage not only hindered the search but also repeatedly resulted in false positive sightings. Peter calls this microplastic abundance. And I will never forget the time when I was trekking in the Himalayas and stopped at a village for lunch and it was you know, incredibly spectacular, high up in the mountains. But after lunch, dozens of plastic water bottles were hurled into the river running through the village. The pale blue rapids carrying off the bottles to who knows where, further down the mountains, to other villages, to northern India, to the sacred shallows of the Ganges perhaps, and even beyond. But we now no longer know where exactly that beyond is, or where anything now really ends up. As plastic breaks down, its trajectories become infinite. Now, of course, we're all worried about the human ingestion of plastic, and it certainly is a real issue, especially from an intergenerational justice perspective. But far more pernicious are the forms of microbial life and bacterial communities that attach to plastic and which spread wherever that plastic travels. The plastic becomes a vector for pathogens that can spread to areas of the globe um, are vulnerable to such risks, remote areas that had hitherto been protected. Now, one author, Peter Seitz, sums up the impact as entanglement, ingestion, smothering, hangers-on, hitchhiking and alien invasions. Another scientist puts it more blunt bluntly, it's a ticking time bomb. So this also says something about how we conceptualise a problem. While we may be focusing on what appears to be the major issue right in front of us, eating seafood, more significant complications may be developing on the peripheries or lurking in the shadows. And that, I think, is one of the complexities of climate change in general. You know, how do we think this problem at this scale? Now, in the 1970s, Horst Rittle and Melvin Weber coined the term wicked problem to describe problems that are difficult, unimaginably complex and intractable and which lack simplistic or straightforward planning solutions or responses. Now, more recently, a group of academics have updated the term in the context of climate change. Now they speak of super-wicked problems. <laughs> and, it <laughs> and it's worth listing the characteristics of these environmental super-wicked problems because they relate to what we've heard this evening. <coughs> In the context of climate change, a super-wicked problem comprises four features. Time is running out. Two, those who cause the problem also seek to provide a solution. Three, the central authority needed to address it is weak or non-existent. Four, policy responses discount the future irrationally. I think they're you know, really worth bearing in mind, those four points. So, of course, there are no simple or easy solutions to these super-wicked problems, least of all technological fixes. But that does not mean that progressive, slow, incremental change is not helpful or doesn't occur. Indeed, these small policy changes, banning plastic bags and plastic water bottles, creating a public focus on the microbeads used in cosmetic cleaners and so on, um, can have significant transformative effects and trigger new path-dependent processes. So rather than path-dependent reliance on high-carbon fossil fuels, we can now try and nurture low-carbon trajectories. The results may not be dramatic or noticeable or you know, create a big bang splash and they may be more concerned with these everyday life shifts and, um, rather than large government strategies. But these trajectories may, may unfold in quite um, significant and durable ways over time. They, they, they may be emergent and they, trigger, they may trigger other more sustainable path-dependent processes and associated behaviours. And I think those, kind of, those two things go together, the, the shift towards these path-dependent processes and the behaviour that will shift alongside that. Thanks.